are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Creed of Christian thought. I'm Brendan here with... Skylar. What you been up to, man? It's been a long time. You know. For the listener, it's just been a weekly thing, but we haven't yeah. done this for like three weeks. Oh, I know. Four weeks. It, it's funny, too. When we do a bunch in a row, yeah. I feel like my tone improves. Oh. And then I take a break. Then you get a little, and then I come little, back, little dicey again, and I just feel the anger come back. Yeah, the indignation. So we'll see how I sound this time. I'm ready to go. Some, yeah, for those sensitive to tone, this may be a little bit of a step back. But I mean, it's the same with boxers. You know, yeah. the the punches just they, they don't come as as fast and as hard in the later rounds yep. after consecutive bouts. <laughs> So you're just fresh now. You're, I am. You're ready to go well, again. <laughs> as fresh as I can be. Uh, you know, I, I was going to take a break from reading Mormon stuff. And instead, I saw a new Joseph F. Smith biography. Relatively yeah. new. And that's mostly what I've been reading. Yeah. Well, you say that. You were you were sending me stuff like the day after <laughs> we <laughs> recorded everything. I'm a maniac. So, I admit anyway. it. But yeah, this book, 2023, yeah. I hadn't seen it, but... Huh. Like a Fiery Meteor, The Life of Joseph F. Smith by Stephen Taysom. And it's been really enjoyable for me. Yeah. Um, he's kind of an interesting figure. He may be mentioned today, but we'll see. Interesting. What about you? Uh, your trip, how'd it go? Yeah, so we went to Texas and uh, just reconnected with a lot of folks, and it was busy. It was... Uh, Really busy, but really good, and uh, yeah, not not anything too crazy that happened. I preached uh, one of the weeks we were there in uh, First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas, yeah, out of Colossians. And yeah, yeah, I went to Colossians. So they uh, it was uh, they they do a big festival that's on uh, just global missions every year, and so they had me come and preach for that Sunday, and so it was a missions-themed sermon, and I preached from Colossians 1, 23 to 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone, admonishing everyone, teaching everyone in all wisdom that everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Yeah. Anyway, so. Well, that's it awesome. Good. It was um, good. I Honestly, you were, what you were saying before, if not this year, next year, we need to do an episode on just what you were telling me about oh, your, yeah. your previous sermon yeah. on Colossians and how relevant it is that was a fun to, one to Mormon to studies. Generally. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, I think it's, absolutely. It's, it's, honestly, it's mind-boggling um, when you see some of the things that Paul is dealing with in the heresy that's popping up as a result of these false teachers that are really creating a, a unique um, folk religion that was unique to the area in Colossae, but to see some of the overlap with uh, LDS thought, it's just, it's crazy. So that's so cool. Anyway, you're leaving town again soon, right? Like what? Well, I, I think so. Okay. You don't know. Yeah. I, I think, well, so the solar eclipse. Yeah. Is this weekend. Uh huh. So maybe. Yeah. See it. I thought you were going to a conference or <clears throat> something well, like that. Well, I, I huh? wanted to, but, you know, car troubles this year. Oh. But, yeah, I wanted to go to the academic conference on Machen yeah. for the 100-year anniversary of 
the publication of Christianity and Liberalism. Instead, mm-hmm. I'll have to yeah. catch it online. Yep. Uh, where, it where was last that weekend. It was in Illinois. Oh, okay. I think Grays Lake, Illinois, at an OPC church uh, there. And um, well, so yeah, Reform Forum. I'm sure, if not already, they're soon going to release the the audio of the, the different lectures and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so, cool. Yeah, didn't make it. Maybe yeah. next year. I don't know. Did you watch them online? Or? I didn't. <laughs> Too busy reading more. I was. <laughs> It was a little busy, uh, but yeah, I do look forward to catching up on it. Yep. Yep. For sure. Well, cool. Let's jump on into Should the material today. Um, yeah. So we're going to be looking at first and second Thessalonians in the, uh, lesson today. The subtitle of this lesson is, uh, perfect, perfect. I should say that which is lacking in your faith perfect that which is lacking in your faith and uh the uh lds churches all over the world are going to be studying this from october 16th to the 22nd and so i'm going to walk through the material and uh we may just make some real brief comments as we walk through but then we'll come back and settle a little bit more um on this stuff so um they do have at the beginning i thought is worthy of of noting uh you know they put the first line being an instruction for the teachers as they're about to prepare their lesson. And in this one, they say, Alma taught, trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister, except he be a man of God. And then they're going to define what a man of God is, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments. And that's mm-hmm. from Mosiah 23, 14. And it says, what does the scripture suggest about how you should prepare yourself to teach? So they're saying, you need to be a man of God. You need to walk in God's ways. You need to keep his commandments. And, uh, of course, from a credo Christian yeah. perspective, the first thing that came to my mind is, what's the first commandment? Right. What's the second commandment? Mm-hmm. If we're just going to talk about the Ten Commandments, you shall yeah. have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. In yep. other words, do not craft a god in your own image and to your own liking, and do not have any other gods before me. I am the one true God, mm-hmm. and there is no other. So if you want to be a man of God, then keep those commandments. Believe that there is one God and make for yourself no idols. Worship God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. That's what it means to be a man of God. <laughs> and unfortunately, as as we would claim, of course, from our credo-Christian perspective, there's not a single person in the LDS faith that can make that claim. Um, you're, you're not a man of God if you're worshiping the wrong God and, and are therefore breaking the commandments. Um, yeah, so. and no sense of how God prepares his people to receive, right? Even I'm thinking Mark 4, where the parable creates the ears to hear yeah. his message. And, of course, that's not entirely new. You look at Deuteronomy 30, and it's the spirit that circumcises the heart, mm-hmm. right? So you, we can even learn all the facts and yet not love it. In fact, indeed hate it. Yep. apart from God. So yep. Yep. there's no sense. And, and notice this is supposed to be a pious point and it's all the burdens on the teacher. So if he's ineffective as a teacher, I guess that's his fault. And yeah. of course it would never be a general authority's fault. It would never be this curriculum's fault. Yep. It's always going to be the very people that pay 10% of their income to these, to, to the paid ministry at the top. Yeah. They're blamed for the ineffectiveness. Yep. 
Okay, so let's get into the uh, material. Of course, you just got the normal invite sharing section as well, where they say, yeah. tell everybody to look through the and books quickly. and find a verse, just one verse that impresses them. Yeah, a few minutes to quickly look over First and Second yeah. Thessalonians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it literally says quickly. Um, okay, so let's get into the teach the doctrine, and we do have a number of sections here. Uh, four, four, I count four major sections. Yeah. So the first one is looking at First Thessalonians one five to eight and two to thirteen, and the subtitle in this section is "Servants of the Lord Should Preach with Sincerity and Love." And uh, I'm just going to read from uh, the, you know, First Thessalonians five. Uh, or one five to eight section for us just to get a little bit of context here. And uh, in fact, one of the things I noted as I was looking at this is you really, the sentence begins at verse four. Um, mm-hmm. So they cite first <laughs> Thessalonians one, five to eight, but in the text, the sentence doesn't begin there. So verse five begins with, because our gospel came to you. So well, what comes before that? Well, verse four, let's just start there for we know yeah. brothers uh, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. you. So there you got divine election going on. God chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose mm-hmm. you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Yeah. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, everywhere, so that we need not say anything. And uh, right, yeah. And, and notice too the the gospel and or sorry, the word and the spirit are together. There, it's yeah. not the spirit apart from the word. Mm-hmm. And whether that's in the church through impressions or a more complicated version of people who stay in, or these postmodern mysticism, post-Mormon mysticism, sorry, maybe I'm repeating myself, but uh, post-Mormon mysticism is always spirit experience apart from what you think. Yep. Whether that's yoga or anything else, prayer wheels, Richard Rohr, I've heard all of this. And um, interestingly, in Ridges, he sees verse 9, where it says God as Heavenly Father, which is interesting to me because um, to serve the living and true God, that's Heavenly Father. But isn't it Jesus that says he's the life? Yep. No, no, notice no sensitivity. And literally in a section when it talks about being delivered from idolatry, right? Yep. And of course, this is his comment is that Heavenly Father is the living God. This is obvious to us. But in a culture of idol worship where people rebelliously or foolishly or unknowingly worship dead gods made of wood and stone, or maybe flesh and bone uh, would be appropriate there, the -hmm. phrase living God is a major doctrinal statement. So, you know, you you see this, once again, just to give another example really quickly, where Ridges clearly just writes Mormon theology into the Scripture— and supposedly a commentary that's supposed to explain Scripture. In verse 10 of chapter 2, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless uh, was our contact conduct toward you believers. He says that means they were living the gospel exactly. Mm-hmm. Thus, he, they're examples of how we should live the gospel exactly. Once again, showing 
not just a misunderstanding of the gospel, though that's there, but a rejection of the gospel. Since it's based on what God has done in Christ, done, not what we do. It's an indicative of what has been accomplished, not an imperative of what we must do. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting, too, to think about some of their way of framing this. Servants of the Lord should preach with sincerity and love. I mean, obviously, what are they preaching? Um, you know, there, there's not really much uh, given here in terms of the content of what's to be preached. Yeah. Um, but then also the the way that they frame it is almost kind of like um, – make sure that you say things in a way that's not ever going to offend anybody sort of a thing, mm-hmm. you know, like the, this focus on sincerity and love and what, the, define that. What do you mean by that? Because if you know what happens to Paul when he goes into Thessalonica and I believe it's acts 17, um, he gets, he gets persecuted and, mm-hmm. and thrown out by the Jews real fast. So obviously his proclamation of the gospel is sincere. Yeah, absolutely. It's done in love. Yeah, absolutely. But it was bold. It was still bold. And it was bold enough that he was uh, even thrown out of the city as a result of his preaching and got to spend very little time with the Thessalonians relative to what it seems he desired to be able to spend with them. He, he wanted to be with them more. He wanted to be face to face with them. And uh, that's part of the reason why he apparently wrote so many letters to them was mm-hmm. to try to help disciple them because he could not be present with them because of the intense persecution for sure that he underwent there. So anyway, if, if it's just the manner that matters and, and, and to show that we're not once again, how they are doing it, teaching and learning from one another period in a section supposedly covering the scriptures. It's all about how they're learning and teaching each other, yep. <laughs> not Paul teaching them. Um, if it's all about the manner here, the flip side, the dark side, I would say, is that when it comes to evangelizing, the truth doesn't matter. Yeah. How many times, I, I, I can name names of people who admitted to me they lied on their missions when asked a tough question about the LDS church or its history. Yeah. Polygamy? No, he wasn't a polygamist. Yep. And, um, and yet later on, you're like, ah, he did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, well, you know, wasn't useful. Yep. Not all things that are true are, are oh, useful, yeah. Yeah. according to Packer. So you can tell that if it's not about truth, yeah, on one hand, they think, well, we can focus on all these positive impressions, but the dark side is also it's it's a means of manipulating people for their own good, supposedly, mm-hmm. and you have this kind of smug feeling that it's worth it yeah. because it's better for them to believe regardless of the truth. Yep, yep. Just definitely this kumbaya. Let's just hold hands and all be friends and win them over by setting an example, sort of a thing for yeah. sure. So, yeah. um, okay. So, yeah, that's the that's the first section that we have here. The second section we have here is as we follow Jesus Christ, He can make us holy. And uh, this is pulling from First Thessalonians three nine to thirteen, and then also from four twelve one to twelve. So let me just read from 3, 9 to 13, and I may read even uh, on beyond that. So beginning in 1 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 9, it says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whatever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you so vital to, to understand how all this is working and Paul's way of thinking. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need. And by the way, what I mean by that is just notice notice in verse 7, for God has not called us. Um, and then recognize what I pointed out in verse 4, that all of this is built on this concept of election. Um, when Paul preaches the gospel, he's preaching a message and they are receiving it. And Paul identifies their reception of that message as revealing that these are ones who have been called out, elected by God. Uh, he chose them. They believed uh, on account of his choosing. And uh, and now they are justified before him, but ought to be sanctified and live new lives. This, this is Paul's way of thinking in all of the epistles. And you, you just can't miss it unless you want to. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 1 again. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power. In other words, you didn't just have a mental ascent. This changed you. Um, the, the gospel is a power that saved you. It changed you. It made you a new person. And now you're being sanctified, and uh, you need to walk in him. Now, concerning brotherly love, this is back to chapter 4, verse 9. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that, indeed, is what you are doing in all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we are Jew brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before the outsider and be dependent on no one. Okay. Yeah, in Ridges there, look how he flips it. On 4 verse 3, um, of course, he doesn't mention the will of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a uh, what do you do with that? Even your sanctification. His comment is, your salvation depends on this. Your salvation. No, no, no. He's talking to saints and encouraging faithfulness, right? Him, he's, uh, on his comment in verse 7 is to become holy, unto holiness, to become holy, to become saints. That if you're righteous enough, you become holy, holy saints. Mm-hmm. If you do these things, and of course he'll throw in the Mormon language like law of chastity, and then verse 12, that ye may lack nothing, he says, that ye may be self-reliant, right? Because ultimately the goal is to be as God is and not need to repent. Yep. So, and this is living the gospel because Paul, quote unquote, is encouraging the members to live righteously. And this is similar to, you know, to us, to current threats, to our living the gospel today. That's how Ridges puts it. Mm-hmm. Pretty different. So yeah, LDS curriculum on this section, the subtitle for those verses is as we follow Jesus Christ. 
he can make us holy. So it's about following Jesus Christ. It's not, it, Paul even talks about faith, belief in Jesus. You know, it, it is through that faith that ultimately, by our dependence upon Christ more and more as we come to understand the gospel and walk in him, that's what makes us holy. It's not the works that we're doing following him. It's the faith, the dependence, the trust in him. But uh, the LDS curriculum goes on. So Paul taught the Thessalonian saints that God hath not called us unto uncleanliness uh, or uncleanness, but unto holiness. To begin a discussion about holiness, your class or an individual could sing more holiness. Give me, which I didn't look that one up, and I don't think you did either. But maybe we should have. Yeah, uh, that could have been fascinating. But they're supposed to have a discussion based on reading this hymn together, and then they say, "How can we develop these characteristics?" And uh, I just put a question out: Is it through God's help, or is it through our cleverness? Like, mm-hmm. what what is what is going to be the answer in the class to those sorts of things? Is it well, we develop this as we depend on Christ and and confess our weakness to Him and trust Him more and more and and walk in that sort of dependence? Or is it, oh, no, no, here's like a five-step plan to overcome sexual sin, and you need to follow this to a T, and you're guaranteed to, to get the win. It's all on you. You need to just, you know, um, tie up your boots and get them on and get going sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then they say the invitation to be holy might seem daunting. Now, this is just a typical pattern, right? It might help if class members understand that developing holiness is a gradual process that requires us to increase more and more over time. To illustrate this process, you can invite a class member to talk about a talent or accomplishment that took consistent effort over time, such as making a quilt or playing a musical instrument. How is the this similar to the process of becoming holy? And then they're going to you know, have class members write different insights about what it takes, what effort it takes to become holy in the way that Paul describes what has helped us progress toward holiness. So I just think it's sad to see the theme that we've seen all year where they put all this law on people and then they try to comfort them, you know, and it's just kind of this, it's just kind of this false comfort of like, I know that what we just told you might feel overwhelming because we're telling you to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it takes time to be perfect. So just, you know, just know that it's slow, but what can you do to get there? Because yeah. you need to be doing stuff to get there. And of course, we know the balm that every soul needs that is entrapped in this sort of performance-based mentality is not the news that it just takes a long time. That's actually terrible news. I, I If I'm struggling already... I don't want to be told, guess what, buddy? Like, you got to get there eventually, and it's going to take you a lot longer than you thought. You know, no, the balm that the soul needs uh, to, to have massaged into our hearts is to know that Jesus has performed everything perfectly for us already. I'm already forgiven. I'm already accepted. I'm already his child. I'm already guaranteed a heavenly inheritance in Christ. And 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 I can rest. I can truly rest in Christ. And as I rest in him, as my soul rests in him, I can and will and ought to because I've been made into a new person. This is Paul's point when he's talking about you receive the Holy Spirit. Like you, you were changed when you heard the preaching of the gospel, um, that objective word about what Christ has done when they heard it and believed it, uh, they, they 
received the Holy Spirit and were made into a new creation where now as they rest in Christ, they begin to walk in his ways. And, uh, but it's not a, it's not a, a sort of deal where we just keep telling each other, keep trying harder in the Christian community. What we do is we receive, we remind one another of the forgiveness we've received in Christ. And then we keep pressing on together in following him. Yes, absolutely. In being sanctified. Yes, absolutely. That is the will of God. Um, Paul would never tell people, well, since Jesus did it all, go live your life as licentiously mm-hmm. as you want. That That is inconsistent. It's incongruent with the reality of what's occurred in the Christian. You've been indwelled with God's Holy Spirit, and what does God's Holy Spirit do when he indwells a person? Well, he begins to make them holy. He's mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. He takes up a home in them, and he begins to clean out all the old cobwebs that are hanging around. He, he begins to renovate. Uh, but it but that is God's work in us. It's not our effort that's even causing that to happen. It's our dependence upon God, our trust in him, our putting one foot in front of another when we feel our strength is spent, trusting God. He's going to provide the strength I need. Um, but all of that is done with a disposition of rest in the objective truth of of forgiveness and uh, uh, righteous credit uh, that we received in Christ so that we know we're going to stand before God on the last day accepted. Already, we know that. Right. It, and in, whereas in Mormonism, you can never do enough, and you can never do it well enough. And basically, that's why grace is used as a word. It's, it's, it's an aesthetic yeah. of like, Oh, just graces, you know, marathons run a step at a time. Yeah. That's grace. Yep. It's it's not a gift to be received that it's not a, a being, right? Christ, whom in whom we have rest um, at all. <laughs> Instead, he accomplished it and so can you, but here's grace. Apparently, you have as much time as you need. But then, no, 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 no. You listened to Nelson or Oaks recently, right? And it's like, no, you got to live the celestial law now or you won't live in the celestial kingdom. So you don't really have as much time as you need. So that's what's, you know, here's, <laughs> yeah, it, it really is um, so much a burden that I think those in it, because they're used to it, they don't, they don't get it. They really don't. I think in moments of clarity, they will. Mm. They'll, they'll realize they can't be good enough. Um. You just wonder why it doesn't move more of them toward a savior yeah. rather than more toward there's nothing wrong, a rejection of sin or hell, as we see so often when people leave. Yep. Um, it's funny, whereas they um, used to, quote-unquote, rest in the aesthetic of the word grace, which is somehow just you have time, try hard, and you know it'll be good enough. They then leave and get into the aesthetic of grace in the gospel the way as Sam Harris defines it, which is, you know, you die and there's nothing after that. Yep. No accountability, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, even related to that, just just listen to what Paul is saying, and I already read this, so I'll read this again. Uh, and this is back in chapter 1, verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, so not only are you preaching the gospel, in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God 
has gone forth everywhere. Not not the evidence of all the good works, your your faith, the the trust, the hope, the the clinging to Christ has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God. Listen to this. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's the gospel, friends. Yeah, delivers from Jesus me. delivers us from the wrath to come. So here, here's what you don't get. Uh, and this is uh, going a little bit back to the first point, servants of the Lord should preach with sincerity and love. I don't know of any LDS missionary I've ever heard preach the wrath to come. Have you ever heard LDS no, modern uh, people preach the wrath to come? In fact, recently— God's wrath is coming, <laughs> no. and you need to be delivered from it? No, instead, it's natural consequences by the choices you choose or the choices you make relative to eternally existing law. Yeah. And practically speaking, there is really no wrath. I mean, everybody no. gets to what go they're to comfortable one with. of the kingdoms, right? Yeah. Even Oaks, he says, yeah, whatever law you're comfortable with, that's where you're going to end up being. Yeah. Yeah. So, contrast that, I mean, again, to what God's word just so clearly says. This is just a short phrasing of the gospel Jesus is raised from the dead. Their faith is in him. He delivers us. Jesus does. We don't deliver ourselves. He delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what they're hoping in. That's what they're proclaiming. That's the word that is going forth and is resounding amongst all of the people in Macedonia and Acacia. Um, so that's the preached message. That's what we're supposed to preach ourselves. That's what we're supposed to cling to as we follow Jesus Christ. And by continually clinging to Christ, uh, we will we will grow and be sanctified. So you can't separate those things. You, you've got to keep them in their proper order, in their proper place, and in the proper place within your own heart. Um, okay, anything else on that section? I will uh, put a... a, a struggling to find the quote, but in uh, Stephen Westerholm's book, Justification Reconsidered, he actually uses First um, Thessalonians as kind of a, a, gl- a glance at a church about as early as Galatians, right? Yeah. That where the gospel's not being challenged, and yet how justification is still there. And we see not only assurance of covenant inclusion, but of ultimate uh, ultimate deliverance by a savior. And I I did think that there was no sensitivity here. And I don't know if the interpreter types would uh, have caught this as well and would have worded differently, but the whole idea of holy being also a status, right? Israel was holy in the sense that they were set apart from the world, but, but not always from their behavior. They were often included in the covenant yet unjustified by the terms of the covenant. Right. And and yet here you have so much covenant talk in LDSism, and yet at the end of the day they'll say by baptism you're included in the at least the beginning of the process of all these covenants you keep. But at the end of the day, it's becoming a God where you're ultimately vindicated and becoming holy yourself. And so there's this kind of confusion in terms of what a covenant inclusion would be, let alone vindication on the terms of it. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. I think Christians would probably understand that point a little better than um, some of the LDS listeners, but the point being is it's the same gospel we find in Galatians. Mm-hmm. It's the same, and the gospel is salvation by grace, and that's why they can rest in the deliverance from wrath to come, even w- in the same letter where they're being encouraged to definitely 
lean into the work of God to be further sanctified in their behavior. Yep. Yep. That's good. Okay. The next section is first Thessalonians four, 11 to 12, which I already read those verses when I was reading through the longer portion of the last section, but that's just inspired to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's first Thessalonians four, 11 to 12. And then they also cite second Thessalonians three, uh, seven to 13. I won't take the time to read those, but it's on this theme that they're highlighting. Here's the subtitle in the LDS curriculum. We should work to provide for ourselves and those in need. And the lesson is generally just about working hard. Um, (laughs) You know, the questions are, what does it mean to make sure that you're not idle, that you're a hard worker? Uh, What are the perils of idleness? And then they give a couple of extra scriptures to work through and the additional resources as well. So that's a short section, but the idea is just to discuss why uh, we shouldn't be idle and should work hard. And uh, generally, I don't have much of an issue with, uh, with what they're putting here. But again, for us, it's knowing that these are the very, uh, these are the very things that they must do in order to earn a righteous status on the last day in order to earn exaltation. So for them, it's not just work uh, because we want to honor and glorify God. And it's wise to continue working and not just sit on our hands thinking Jesus is coming back tomorrow, so I might as well not work. No, we need to go on living faithful lives, trusting in God, being sanctified, um, working, working with our hands. We need to be diligent and continue living our lives in a normal, peaceable, quiet way as Christians. Um, we don't need to make any radical decisions about how we think we should be living our lives on the assumption that we think Jesus is imminently returning. Um, we as Christians can believe Jesus is going to return imminently and yet continue living wise, normal, ordinary lives, not being idle, continuing to work hard. So for us, we can, we can do that again, with that rest in Christ. It's, we're not doing the work and developing gifts and talents because that's part of the road to our exaltation. It's just trusting, uh, as, as we trust in the indicatives of the gospel, we do the imperatives, right? Um, so what, what do you got on this one? Yeah, well, I just, of course, if there's a section on work, they're going to include it, right? Oh, yeah. Um, in, in the seminary manual, they do have this um, section on work at the bottom, where they recommend the work and self-reliance section of the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet and talk about how being a hard worker helps them become like the Savior. I, I just want to point out that what, what they, I mean, this is an eternal um, principle in Mormonism, right? Like these are eternal blessings. You work for this, you get that. If you don't do this, you don't get that, right? And and so it, it is... And you, you you see this insensitivity even in the additional resources they mention where they cite four LDS scripture sources, two are from the Bible, one's from the Book of Mormon, and then several from the DNC in one uh, point. They cite Genesis 3, which is interesting because they don't really believe in a fall. There's no sensitivity. I'm not saying Genesis 2, the ideal, Edenic ideal, is workless. Mm-hmm. But but surely a lot of the points in Genesis three are making it worse than it should be. The world is not as it should be, right? And yet they'll cite that as a resource to help them understand the blessings of work. And I, I think there's also a broader point here of 
you know, work making you like Jesus and becoming like the Savior. Yet what of his passages about rest? What of his uh, literally events in his life we have in the Gospels where he's at parties, mm-hmm. banquets? He's, he's one of the... Um, uh, criticisms of Jesus is he's a drunkard, mm-hmm. showing he drank alcohol, but anyway, uh, a drunkard, right? And so there's no, instead, what they have done is created a Jesus in their own image and then project that back. And you, you see that even in some of the talks they include, just one, just really quick. There's a talk they include in the seminary manual by a Jean Bingham uh, ministering the way the Savior does. And she has a paragraph where she, it's, it's what did the Savior do. Um, she mentions the atonement and the resurrection, but then notice this at the end. But he also smiled at, talked with, walked with, listened to, made time for, encouraged, taught, fed, and forgave. Uh, I'm not saying every one of those points is wrong. I'm not saying it's not a fair assumption, but notice she's talking about it like we, we know, like we have passages in the gospels about him smiling. But, but see, if, if your lessons are built on pictures and your impressions, and you're, you're taught to think those are Jesus, of course he smiles at you and laughs. And, mm-hmm. and he also does that a lot in the Gnostic text. But anyway, um, he served family and friends. I thought that was interesting. Who is his family? There's yeah. literally passages where he says, who is my mother? Who's, and, and no, he served his family. I think she probably believes he was married. Uh, and friends, neighbors, and strangers alike, and he invited acquaintances and loved ones to enjoy the rich blessings of his gospel. But but there's no sense of Matthew 10 where he's like, no, 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 it's not your time yet. Yeah. You know, and then she asked for the crumbs from the table, right? There's no sense of a priority of Jew at a particular point in Jesus' ministry. There's not a sense in which of him condemning even the most holy. I mean, the Pharisees, that was a holiness movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it properly understood. Right. And, and there's no sense he says, you're not of your father, Abraham. You're of the father of the devil. It, it, that's not this. this. It's not cute. Those simple acts of service and love provide a template for our ministering today. Those are the acts of service. And notice she doesn't say, except the atonement and resurrection. It's one paragraph. Anyway, yeah. I'll just point that out. When you're dealing with an LDS commitment to Jesus, you're typically dealing with their impression of who Jesus is, which is typically going to be informed by their art, which is this kind of... He tends to look a lot like Joseph Smith, white man, mm-hmm. blue eyes, who is the cute granddaddy in the sky. Yeah. It, it, it's it's unfortunate, but that's what we're dealing with. And really quick, before we move to the main point, you, you see that in how they frame in the seminary manual both lessons so far, where both of them start with displaying an image. So um, they can the, the teacher is supposed to pick from a picture of Jesus ministering, right? And then they're supposed to... Um, uh, display on the board uh, one of these images um, or in one of them, a few of them. And then they're supposed to look at the image, the students are, and write words they think of next to each one. Right. And then they're supposed to, um, in their study journal, list words and phrases that describe what the Savior is doing for the individuals he interacts with and that's the basis of one of the lessons the the second one on the second coming which we're not going to have time for today but they spent a few weeks in revelation and we'll come back to it but you know they once again they display an image that depicts the second coming it's it's the white lds jesus and they say what are some things you know about the second coming what are some things you don't but in light of this image right not in light of the text in light of this image 
And, and, and then, of course, no sense of how one knows at all. It certainly isn't the text. That's not what's emphasized. The text is a means to their end. And so, you know, when they say work, it's something for Christians to push back on, not because we're promoting idleness, but because how it functions in their system. And in that sense, they're, they're rejecting not only the gospel, but they're rejecting the Edenic ideal. Which, once again, I'm not saying is workless, but certainly doesn't have the toil and suffering that mm-hmm. came as a result of the fall. A fall they don't believe in, ultimately. Therefore, they don't have need for a Savior, ultimately. Yeah. Yep. Good thoughts. Okay, so let's get to the meat of uh, yeah. what we're going to talk about today. Um, only 40 minutes in, so we're doing all right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so... Uh, they cite 2 Thessalonians 2, and it's probably worthwhile for me to read this. But uh, but before I even read this, I just want to say that this is, again, and this is a pattern we've seen, uh, this is one of those passages of Scripture that has been widely debated and is difficult to nail down exactly what this is talking about and referring to. And once again, we're going to have one of the fundamental doctrines of the LDS faith appealing to this sort of a passage to to uh, proof text their uh, particular doctrine. And the doctrine I'm talking about here is the great apostasy. So they want to use this text to try to argue for a great apostasy, a great falling away. Uh, Skylar, you're going to fill in for us what they mean by that. And then we're going to deal with a lot of interesting issues that are going on right now within LDSism regarding the great apostasy. Let's just say this is not a settled matter, uh, even with LDS thought. Yeah. Um, there, everything is changing. Everything. And, uh, and so here is the text, Second Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you uh, these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in this in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he now only he who now re, uh, restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth 
To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God our Father, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Okay. That's the whole of chapter two. Yeah. Now, subtitle here in the LDS curriculum is an apostasy was to proceed to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It may be helpful to discuss some of the metaphors prophets have used to describe the apostasy, such as a falling away, a famine, grievous wolves entering a flock and itching ears. Consider dividing class members into pairs and asking them to read one or more of these scriptures or others that you choose and describe what the verses teach about the great apostasy. What did prophets teach about the apostasy and the effect that it would have. Though the church won't experience another falling away, as it did anciently, we can still fall away individually. What does Second Thessalonians 2 suggest about how this falling away can happen, and how can we avoid it? Okay, so... Skyler, I don't even know. Have we covered the great apostasy? I can't recall. We've mentioned we it because we've, they, of course, they've emphasized the restoration every chance they get. Yeah, and that assumes a great apostasy. Yeah. So quickly for potentially some of our evangelical Christian listeners, fill in for us what the great apostasy is in an LDS way of thought. Well, so, and well, and that's that's what's changing, right? But the the typical view, the view I was taught to teach as an LDS missionary, right, is that Jesus came, he set up his church, he called 12 apostles, they went around evangelizing and setting up uh, the church, right, these churches, and then as they were being killed, and then the wickedness of the people, and then, of course, uh, you'll, you'll have more developed versions of this, but, you know, sometimes it's the ideas of the world, philosophy, or whatever, crept in, the the uh, priesthood authority was lost, the church was lost, and the knowledge was lost. And um, all three needed to be restored through Joseph Smith, meaning the priesthood authority, the church, the knowledge, and um, I feel like I'm forgetting one other. And uh, I guess, oh yeah, the apostles and prophets, of course, as part of the church reorganization. And so the idea is... There is a radical rupture after the apostles, and then a bright reinstitution in Joseph, through Joseph Smith, of the primitive church as it actually was. Um, so that's, that's how <laughs> it's been taught, right? And, and it, this is the thing. I, I went back to my Preach My Gospel um, missionary textbook, which they do cite in this seminary manual, though they've changed some of the words. Um, and they'll even say that the, what the Reformation resulted in is not what we're talking about. So they'll even try to distinguish themselves from Protestantism. Um, now they will always do it in a sloppy way. So um, maybe the Reformation leads to religious freedom, or the Reformation sets the stage for the Founding Fathers, and then God raised the Founding Fathers to create freedom for Mormonism, but then they they rarely think of how they tie that to their persecution narrative. <laughs> the, the founding fathers set up the constitution for freedom for the church, and then the church had to run to Utah because apparently uh, God didn't quite succeed the way they thought he 
should or whatever, but agency. So did the best he could. So here's the thing is that, let me just read this right out of the Preach My Gospel manual. Once again, four LDS missionaries all around the world Mm -hmm. to teach investigators. So this manual's like 10, 12, 15 years old. Yeah, mine is apparently an older version because I noticed a lot of word changes that I wrote in the margins. Uh, mine is uh, 2004, uh-huh. and um, but at some point they changed. And I think they are releasing a new one um, if they hadn't already. Um, and yeah, I wonder if that's what I was looking at. Actually, I don't know if the changes on the website are right. the new version. Yeah, but um, they they have this key points section. Um, really, the whole thing is worth reading and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes because I want to come back and point out they have a study section under most of these sections and they took two out that are pertinent to what we're talking about. It says investigators must, and of course in the new one, as you teach, help people understand, but in the original one, must understand that a universal apostasy, meaning complete rupture, no authority whatsoever, occurred following the death of Jesus Christ and his apostles. If there had been no apostasy, there would have been no need of a restoration. As a diamond displayed on black velvet appears more brilliant, so the restoration stands in striking contrast to the dark background of the great apostasy. As guided by the Spirit, teach investigators, and of course they change that to people, about the great apostasy at a level of detail appropriate to their needs and circumstances. Your purpose as a missionary is to help them understand the need for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the key points. The church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2 and 4. These leaders have divine priesthood authority. Through revelation, they direct the affairs of the church. They maintain doctrinal purity, authorize the administration of ordinances, and call and confer upon others the priesthood authority. Two, people rejected and killed Jesus Christ and his apostles. With the death of the apostles, the presiding priesthood authority was absent from the church. Consequently, there was no longer authority to confer the Holy Ghost or perform other saving ordinances. Saving ordinances. Revelation ceased and the doctrine became corrupted. Mm-hmm. Even before the three, even before the death of the apostles, many conflicts concerning doctrine arose. That's why they land so heavily on this. They say Paul prophesied that this is going to happen right then, this great apostasy. The Roman Empire, which had at first persecuted the Christians, later adopted Christianity. And, um, of course, that's a watered-down version. <laughs> uh, they're very anti-Constantine and all that. And they think the Council of Nicaea is this uh, is an example of the apostasy. That's typically what's been said. But oh, yeah. once again, we're going to see that's changing. Important religious questions were settled by councils. That's a negative. That's how I understood it at the time. That's how it was taught. That's how we all understood it, that the councils were a negative. Like, how crazy is that? Mm-hmm. They're not getting revelation. They're coming to council and debating. You don't debate this stuff. You get it by revelation. The simple doctrines and ordinances taught by the Savior were debated and changed to conform to worldly philosophies. See Isaiah 24.5. They physically changed the scriptures. Removing plain and precious doctrines from them, 1 Nephi 13. They created creeds or statements of belief based on false and changed doctrine, Joseph Smith History 119. Because of pride, some aspired to positions of influence, 3 John 1. People accepted these false ideas and gave honor to false teachers who taught pleasing doctrines rather than divine truth, 2 Timothy 4. Throughout history, many people have sincerely believed 
false creeds and doctrines. They have worshipped according to the light they possessed and never see dancers to their prayers, yet they are kept from the truth because they know not where to find it, DNC 123. Therefore, last point, a restoration, not a reformation, was required. Priesthood authority did not continue in an unbroken line of succession from the Apostle Peter, which I would say, do they have that? From Smith, that's debatable. To reform is to change what already exists. Thank you, that's true. Or in, I wouldn't say change just for the sake of change, but yeah, what yeah. already exists. Yep. To restore is to bring back something in its original form. And I would just say, by original, they mean something lost. Yep, yep. Thus, restoration of priesthood authority through divine messengers was the only possible way to overcome the great apostasy. And so, and, and that's, they start that with this first vision account, right? Which they celebrated the anniversary of um, in 2020, right? And issued another proclamation. I'll just point out, I'll put it in the show notes that, um, in fact, a Christian minister, I think Wes Walters, uh, is the one who discovered, um, and I've got a paper, a really good paper from an academic journal, that the revival, the context of the first vision account, um, the one that's canonized being the later one, where Joseph Smith is also changing the theology um, of the account, but um, w wasn't true till late, um, I believe it was late 1824, maybe 1825. So <laughs> it's kind of weird. That would be later than the uh, less disputed date. In fact, I don't know of anyone who does, uh, of the Moroni visit to get the Book of Mormon. So the night of September 21st, you'll notice the, the, um, vernal equinox and which had magic implications but anyway um connotations denotations the that was september the night of september 21st 1823 which we just celebrated the 200th anniversary of at least five of us remembered it uh the church did not make a big deal of it so they actually made a big deal of the one where the dating was probably wrong in the joe smith history so but anyway they emphasize the that is when it stops. The light appeared out of heaven. We're going to stop this apostasy and restore everything needed in Joseph Smith. And um, that, that was, that was it. You're like, if you listen to most general authorities talk about it after this became the narrative of the church, and it is true that this was not always the specific narrative of the church in terms of the first vision emphasis, though they were all people that thought the church needed to be restored. They'll say, we now live in a time when the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored. That's from the True to the Faith Manual with a First Presidency letter at the beginning, also 2004. The idea was past tense, restored through Joseph Smith. Maybe we're dealing with, you know, a little bit on the edges, you know, changing a little bit here or there or emphasizing certain things. But the idea was the bulk of the work had been done through Joseph Smith, period, in the past tense. And that's what's now changing. Yeah. And it's, it's almost difficult to, it's impossible, I would say, to overstate the importance of this particular belief within an LDS way of thought. I mean, the great apostasy is it. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is everything. This is, yep. this is the reason for why the church exists, at least uh, it was why Joseph Smith, you know, it, this was the claim he was making yep. from the very earliest days in, the, in those visions of, I, I've, I'm come to restore the church of God onto the earth. And this has been the narrative of the church, uh, as you've articulated it, really for the last 200 years. And all the way up to uh, the 2020, 
April 5th, General Conference, yep. President Nelson gives a proclamation. Now, we've talked about proclamations on here before because we talked about the family. the family. Yeah. Proclamation. For family. Approach, yeah. And these proclamations are given as as a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're talking about this before the podcast. It's so hard to know how big of a deal it is because they don't want to say that this is canon. And yet it's given in general conference. And even in this particular proclamation at the beginning, President Nelson is is highlighting how important these proclamations are, saying there's only been five of these givens in the whole history of the church. This is so important. This is a, this is a monumental moment. Yeah where we're making this proclamation. And the proclamation is essentially a testimony of belief. It's saying this is what we believe, what we uphold. And this proclamation was on the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they really reaffirm the things that you just now read about right here. And this, again, this is just 2020. This is not long ago at all. Um, They say right here, um, let let me find... What a, the particular line I'm, I'm looking for. Um, they say, in humility, we declare that in answer to his prayer, God, the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ, appeared to Joseph and inaugurated the re, uh, the restitution of all things as foretold in the Bible. In this vision, he learned that following the death of the original apostles, listen, Christ's New Testament church was lost from the yep. earth. Yep. Lost from the earth. Completely gone. Joseph would be instrumental in its return. So the church is gone, wiped from the faces of the earth. There's no evidence of it left. And uh, and Joseph Smith is the one who restored it. Yeah. And, uh, and this is the boast. And this is the boast that w- we've read this uh, before this is why Joseph Smith said, and th- these are his own words, "I have I have more to boast of than any uh, than ever a man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep the whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter Day Saints never ran away from me yet. Um, Joseph Smith, with a bold faced belief, uh, saw himself as the uh, mighty one who is bringing the church back to the earth and is able to hold it together. So this this restoration narrative, this is it. I mean, this is yeah. like fundamental LDS doctrine. Absolutely. And, uh, and LDS people want to get in again try to say our doctrine doesn't change. Our doctrine is eternal. These right. principles are eternal. We don't change our doctrine. And yet, well, take, yeah. it, take, take it away. Well, and that's, that's what's weird. Even... Um, even in this study section, right, they they talk about, or, or sorry, sorry, let me just restart the sentence. In this Preach My Gospel manual, under scripture study, they include a true to the faith that I just quoted from and Talmadge's Long Night of Apostasy out of Jesus the Christ. Talmadge, of course, has a whole book of guy here on the great apostasy very much develops this theme. Yes, historically, this was trying to create a new image for the church post-polygamy. Because remember the manifesto, you know, 1895, I believe it was, and then they didn't really mean it. There was even post-manifesto marriages. D. Michael Quinn is great on that. 
Um, Joseph F. Smith, the guy I'm reading the biography of, is called before a Senate committee, interrogated, uh, basically. And basically he comes back and says, okay, we mean it this time. It's messy and they need a new narrative. Believe it or not, polygamy was the narrative. <laughs> like the, the, the new and everlasting covenant was not just marriage, it was polygamy. And we've gone through that in past episodes, uh, how they, they used to preach against monogamy, which is part of the irony of the family proclamation. But it just once again, to, to, to show how clear Talmadge, who was an LDS apostle, was, he, he talks about the diversity of Protestantism is, is evidence them being devoid of divine authority. Um, no sense of, which he knew better, that what does that mean to the diversity of Mormonisms out there, um, even different denominations? I wanted to read this. Throughout the period of apostasy, once again, Talmadge in a source that used to be cited in the missionary textbook under the sources, and this is taken out. Throughout the period of apostasy, the windows of heaven had been shut toward the world so as to preclude all direct revelation from God, and particularly any personal ministration or theophany of the Christ. Mankind had ceased to know God and had invested the utterances of prophets and apostles of old who had known him with a pall of mystery and fancy so that the true and the living God was no longer believed to exist. But in his place, the secretaries, or sectaries, rather, sorry, sectaries, um, had tried to conceive of an incomprehensible being devoid of body, parts, or passions, Westminster Confession, an immaterial nothing. And he even <laughs> he even says that no more conclusive evidence that man had ceased to know God need to be adduced than the Athanasian Creed. So, yeah, now, just this year, right, um, we're getting a different take from BYU. We're getting a different take from a book that is making a lot of, getting a lot of attention, right, from, and we'll put a couple sources in the footnote or in the show notes. Um, the book is called Ancient Christians, an Introduction from for Latter-day Saints, for Latter-day Saints, from the Maxwell Institute at BYU. And they have different scholars speak of different, um, cover different topics. But just to read, this is Peggy Fletcher Stack in the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, Latter-day Saints generally believe that Jesus established a church during his ministry, but after the death of his apostles, that body fell away from its gospel foundation due to what is called the Great Apostasy. Many have come to think that God withdrew from the world at that time and remained distant through the Dark Ages until 1830, when Christ's church was restored to its original form in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's exactly, literally in this manual, uh, the Sunday school, or sorry, the seminary day, they include a video, another one of these Bible Project knockoff LDS videos, where they say exactly that. Like, that is the five-minute video. Yeah. Well, some LDS scholars know better. <laughs> this is That is an overly simplistic, if not completely false narrative about early Christians, according to a new book of essays. Um, so they, you know, this is... Uh, the first book by and for LDS that presents the first genera generations of Christians after Christ as something other than evidence of a great apostasy or proof that the world needed a restoration. So the, the, the book's editor's mission is to help 
fellow LDS see ancient Christians as their spiritual ancestors and to connect with other believers. <laughs> you, you just need to read that again. That's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. because that, that is an, that is an unbelievable change. Yeah. If this is embraced in doctrine. Absolutely. And, and here's the thing. People are saying, well, you're quoting, you know, general authorities and then you're quoting BYU scholars. What's the connect? Yeah. The connect is the new phrase ongoing restoration, which is also coming out of the mouth of the prophets, seers, and revelators. Yep. And you, as you were explaining, I mean, the, these are these scholars at BYU, these are the top-notch guys. Yes. I mean, the, these are the church's top scholars yes. that are putting this fields. stuff out. And so the, this, this sort of thing is a, like seismic uh, earthquake sort of a, a deal when, when these, yeah. this stuff comes out, people listen. Yes. The, the authorities listen to yeah. what these guys have to say. Right. Right. This isn't, this doesn't have the controversy of someone like the interpreter or, you know, it's, this is not a post Mormon group. This is BYU's scholarly Institute that general authorities will listen to. And once again, the general authorities have already signaled, we're no longer talking about the restoration is only past, but as ongoing. Yeah. And therefore, they are opening the opportunity for this. Notice, they, I don't know how to say this. They know how to shut down something at yeah. BYU if they don't agree. Yep. Right? Praying to Heavenly Mother. Some will know what I'm talking about. So th this is, yeah, this is it's a huge shift. It's getting a lot of attention, this ongoing restoration. And once again, these book's editors, Mark D. Ellison, Catherine Gines, Taylor, and uh, Christian Heal, I hope I'm pronouncing those names right, sorry, have a lofty mission to help fellow LDS see ancient Christians as their spiritual ancestors and to connect with other believers. So it's about becoming more familiar with our shared ancient Christian history, which will enable us to communicate better with other Christians today. And I, I do like that part, right? He, he, in fact, they, they quote one of these scholars as saying, we often talk past each other, we have a different religious vocabulary. True. But why? Yeah. Right? Um, and But here's the thing. Some of these things that they're challenging in this book is the idea of a great apostasy itself uh, by showing, and I do agree with them, that the, the so-called dark ages often weren't very dark. <laughs> you know? And um, so, once again, trying to limit the first vision where supposedly Jesus told Joseph Smith that all the creeds were an abomination— this should not imply, quote, a mass corruption in the ancient church or complete loss of everything that was good. Okay, Black, Bruce R. McConkie called it the Black Millennium. I mean, this is, to me, this is just the, is this going to go? Yeah. You know, I mean, we're going to get to a talk probably next time more where there was a talk in this recent general conference over doctrine and policy, and they do the the gaslighting thing of, you know, oh, you know, the members, they can't tell the difference. And so that's where the confusion comes. It could never be the fact that Brigham Young taught Michael God for three decades, but <laughs> mm -hmm. from the pulpit in general conference and in the temple, no, that couldn't be why there's confusion as to, I don't know, even who God is among Mormons that study history. No, 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 no. It's the members not being able to identify doctrine, which is eternally true versus policy, things that change for the good administration of the church. Well, in his testimony, he says, and I quote, um, he, he actually says a line on this apostasy narrative, right? Quote, Jesus Christ restored his church and the truths of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith, all past tense. 
Okay. And, and yet this is the same general, once again, class of general authorities that's allowing this ongoing restoration that they need to ease pressure on the fact that so much has changed, mm-hmm. right? From the race stuff, from polygamy, the temple changes. Um, how do they make room? How do they make more flexible this narrative? Well, then you have other people taking advantage of the attempt to kind of ease the pressure to try to create an entirely new narrative for the church, often using explicitly postmodern categories of whatever story is most meaningful to you. Yeah. So I mean, Terrell Givens is one of these people. Once again, I think he was the guy behind the Becoming Like God essay. Yeah. Don't know that yet, but I'm pretty sure. But he he has a, an essay called Rethinking Mormon Restoration where he's cha- he explicitly challenges the narrative of, quote, radical loss and abrupt reinstitution. And rather, he supports a view that's retreat and admixture. And of course, this is the same kind of group that, that see... Joseph Smith as the divine eclectic, you know, eclectic collector, right? The the salvager, the assimilator, um, experimenter, you know, all these kind of more left um, categories in terms of innovation, right, um, and exploration that allow individual LDS to tell themselves a different Mormon story and still stay in. Or you see what I'm saying, right? It's yeah. it. This well, is this is a huge change, and we're right in it. Yeah, that's what's. So I don't know if you saw this, but Givens endorses the book. Well, there you go. And uh, he says Joseph Smith referred to the restore or the restored church coming forth out of the wilderness. He thereby provided the seeds of historical consciousness go. that fully appreciates the beauty and power of Christian voices that have persevered through the centuries. This series of essays celebrates the rich legacy of Christian devotion and cultural production long past, sensitively written and lavishly illustrated, an essential study combining the aesthetic and the scholarly. So, well, he, yeah, he's all he's all in for, <laughs> for this book. Um, yeah, I, I, I look forward to picking up a copy of this. I mean, this, this would be the kind of book that, you know, maybe next year we'll, we'll work through some of these essays, yeah. but uh, the, the narrative that's going to be given is so evident and clear to me already. It's, it's going to be trying to latch on to the, you know, the, 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 uh, what was the word up the, I guess some of the various groups and they were many that were breakoffs from Christianity in the early church that mm-hmm. we know of. And, uh, you know, the, the more archeology span and the th- things that we find as we find all these different documents, we do find there were a lot of different groups that would have identified themselves as Christian in the early church era. And so the narrative that's going to be painted here is going to be that there was always a large variation of Christian groups. And, you know, we should just see ourselves as one of those. And uh, as those who are kind of strengthening and adding to and clarifying the truth in these latter days, but, you know, we can latch on to a Christian heritage that we now can lay hold to because we know there were so many groups back then and we were one of those groups. And, uh, you know, our particular persuasion of Christianity got lost over time, but we still were part of the Christian tradition all the way up until this day. And, uh, and, and so that's going to be the picture that's going to be painted, of course, historically. And we would just say very clearly that really 
what is going to make all the difference, as we've been saying all along, is whether or not you're going to embrace the Bible as being what it is. Um, the, is the Bible the revelation of God, the authority of God? Were the apostles of the New Testament true apostles? And if so, can we trust what they said? And has God's word been preserved for us so that we can actually know an objective truth? Because here's the deal, friends. If you go and read your New Testament, what you're going to find is in the majority of epistles that we have, the apostles are combating false teachings. They're comb- and these false teachings are not teachings that are way out there. They're teachings that are infiltrating churches. And so the apostles are given to the church to lay a foundation so that the church can hold fast to the truth once for all delivered to the saints. So the the New Testament is given to us so that we can know what the true Christianity is up against mm-hmm. false groups that are going to come into existence. And there's a reason why the apostles labor to make sure that people know a false gospel is damning. It does not save you. You've got to know the truth. You've got to know the Christ, the one who saves. You've got to have your faith in him. You've got to rightly articulate who he is, and you've got to hold fast uh, to the truth that we are proclaiming to you. And that's even what's going on in 1 Thessalonians, as Paul's talking about. We brought the word of truth to you. We brought the gospel to you. We brought the truth, and you held fast to it. And so all true Christians have held fast to the true body of truth. So it doesn't matter if there's groups here, there, and everywhere that claimed to be Christians and integrated different types of Christianity into their belief system. In fact, you alluded in the introduction to my sermon that I just preached on Colossians. What you have in Colossians that Paul is combating is a folk religion that is coming into existence. I mean, it's almost like you're getting to see it in in an embryonic state. There's a folk religion that's coming into existence that is syncretizing. And this always was the problem. All the way back in the Old Testament, the Jews were told, do not let these false religions infiltrate your religion. And that doesn't mean don't buy their religion wholesale and give up yours altogether. No, the concern was the syncretism. Yeah, the the synthesizing, the the, I want to say syncretization of these different uh, belief systems. And that's the idolatry. The idolatry is is not just when you abandon uh, your Jewish roots altogether. It's when you start to let a little bit come in and it begins to change the whole thing altogether. Yep. And then you've lost the pure worship of Yahweh. And so that's exactly the same thing that's going on in the New Testament. The apostles are laying this foundation in order to ensure that all true Christians know what is the pure worship of Yahweh? What is the pure worship of Christ? How do we make sure that we maintain who he truly is and how he ought to be worshiped and not lose that? And that's why God gave us his word so that we right. can decipher that's a false group. That's a that's a group that's syncretizing and that's a group that is not pure. And so we're, we're going to reject that and hold fast to the truth of the gospel. So it's a bunk argument. I mean, it's it's it, it shouldn't go anywhere in terms of trying to latch on to these other so-called Christian groups because the New Testament is establishing they're not Christian. Mm-hmm. And so what's that? that's the point. Right. And I, I will say that... Um, I like some of the change of tone, right? Because, I mean, one of the main points of this book is that 
you know, we weren't, we're not all in it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, this is a review that I'm going to also include um, of this book, not your parents. Um, what was it? Not your parents' apostasy and restoration. It's yeah. the clever title yeah. of this Michael Austin review of the book. And he says this right off the bat, the editors make it clear that they are not going to encourage or even tolerate the standard LDS view of early Christianity. Once again, from BYU, a church owned That's university. unbelievable. Right. The one where those silly Christians broke away from the truth after the apostles died and permitted Greek philosophy and Roman culture to permeate the plain and precious doctrines of Jesus Christ and turn his true church into something great, abominable, and of the devil. So what they're saying is we're, we are not going to tolerate yep. Joseph Smith's fundamental claims. Exactly. It's unbelievable. It is. And yet, because the general authorities have opened the door with this ongoing restoration stuff, yep. let me put it this way. If they can survive the end of polygamy, they can survive the end of this. Yeah. And I don't know what Mormonism will look like going forward, but honestly, I almost appreciate the hardcore antithesis that they used to assume between themselves and Christians, not wanting any of this Christian stuff in. That was at least clear. What we're now going to see is LDS who look at Augustine as a brother. Yeah. And and now, I mean, I do like, this, this is bizarre. <sighs> I mean, they'll say it'll introduce readers to influential early Christian figures like Tertullian, Clement, Gregory, Irenaeus, Augustine, all names we've mentioned this year, right? As well as some of the roads not taken like Origen, Arius, and Pelagius. These are all folks that we really ought to know. And at the very end, and then I'll move on from this, um, this is important as we study the New Testament in 2023, because let's just be honest here, as much as we insist that we are really Christians, when somebody suggests we are not, most of us know very little about the first 1,800 years of the Christian tradition. Now, so I do like that there's, they are getting rid of the, the assumption that, that we're all corrupt and evil. That being said, I fear the synthesis in the sense that when Mormonism morphs into its next phase, how hard will it be to have real conversations that acknowledge the differences that made Mormonism what it was in all of its phases? Yeah. And um, so, and yet also, just looking at this manual and looking at all this other stuff, they never have a sense of what standard you judge the church other than this idea of revelation. Yeah. And so ultimately... What's happening is that it, this is all a battle of images. It, it makes me think of Plato's allegory of the cave in the sense of the shadows on the wall. You literally had the LDS church create the early church in its own image and read themselves into the text. And you saw this even with the Oaks talk that's making a, uh, getting all the noise right now, where he says Paul spoke of the three kingdoms. No, he didn't. And we covered that. But right, they make the early church in their own image. But here's what's happening is this new generation is making the LDS church in their image. Yeah. And the general authorities are now political players that are now going back and forth, wanting to claim their doctrine has never changed. It's only policies that change. And yet one of the, the, the main story that has defined the church in terms of the great apostasy since the beginning, in terms of the first vision emphasis um, since you know, 1905 or so, I, I don't know the exact date, but it was around that time that they, they this became the image of the church. Yep. The story that, the, the common story for them, the collective story. How, how are they going to navigate 
a generation of people, generations of people that have had this story define their identity and now pivot and say, no, 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 no. They were all sincere. You know, what, what's left? What, mm-hmm. what is left at that point? Yeah. Um, I think they'll still emphasize the unique authority. And of course their temple will always be a unique feature. Yeah. But how do you say Augustine's a brother while you're trying to become gods and you do in a mimetic form in the LDS temple? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I just, <laughs> you, you still will not end up with the God of the Bible. Yeah. You know, and, and so the, the, the narrative may change to try to make it more historically viable, yeah. but it won't change the idols that are there. Um, it won't change the fundamental problems that we've been going at as we've been walking through the New Testament all year. Um, the, the, the God of an LDS belief system, or the gods, we should yeah. say, mm-hmm. is not the God of the Bible. And, uh, and the Jesus in an LDS belief system is not the Christ of, of Scripture. And so um, ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the, the conversation for sure in terms of how easy it is to disprove a great apostasy. But the fact that we're going to be calling people back to see that the Bible is trustworthy, that the God of the Bible has revealed himself to us so that we can objectively know him, and that the call to repentance is to believe and trust in him and to cast away all other false worship— um, that that won't change, and uh, and that I mean that still is the call that every LDS person needs to hear from a credo Christian perspective. Absolutely. La- last words. We got yeah. we got like two minutes left here. Okay. Well, I think the first thing they got to start doing, though, if they're really going to claim the Christian label and I guess navigate themselves into this place of assuming the narrative they have, but making room for its opposite. Um, how about? Stop the fake quotes. So they had a section um, in the seminary manual on this day underneath the question, did Christians who lived before the Restoration notice the apostasy? And they, they cite Martin Luther as saying, quote, I have sought nothing beyond reforming the church in conformity with the Holy Scriptures. So good so far. I simply say that Christianity has ceased to exist among those who should have preserved it, end quote. <laughs> That's what they claim Luther said. Well, of course, as is their usual, they cite some really obscure source no one's heard of. So on Amazon, they had a couple copies, and I, I forked out the money and got it. Luther in his Times by E.G. Schweibart, or Schweibert, something like that. Sorry to this author for mispronouncing his name, I'm sure. And, of course, copyright 1950. And so I, I sent you this picture, right? Um, open to the page, they say 509. I see the first half of the quote, the beyond reforming the church for the Holy Scriptures. Second half's not there. Interesting. And I read the whole chapter, not there. I, I, I didn't have enough time to read the whole book. It's been a great read. I'm actually grateful to the manual for encouraging me to get this book because it's actually really good. But far from Luther saying the church has ceased to exist. Um, he even, there's a point even in this chapter that he would agree to a future council on some of the issues he's bringing up. Agreeing to a future council. That does not sound like someone who thinks the church 
ceased to exist. And so they, they also cite a Roger Williams quote that they may have a point with Roger Williams, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. he hey, went, let me just yeah. jump in on the yeah. Luther quote real quick. Oh yes. Yes. Um, I've just got a bit here. So let me just reference this too and put this in the show notes, but there is a tremendous book that just came out a, a year or so ago by Matthew Barrett, the reformation as renewal, retrieving the one Holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I think that the difference, one of the differences, no matter what the LDS Church does with this, they're not going to, they're not going to try to claim any sort of true Catholicity on the basis of doctrine, on the basis of Christians always affirming the same essential components of creeds and confessions. And what, um, what uh, Matthew Barrett is showing is that even the Reformation was not, and you've already alluded to them recognizing this as well, the LDS scholars, and that's helpful, but the Reformation was not innovation. The, the Reformers actually thought we are in alignment far more with the scholars that have come before you guys, and they were calling out the current leaders in the Catholic Church saying, you guys are the ones who've gone away from the Holy Catholic Church. You're no longer Catholic. And so Luther actually says, as he's writing to a duke that was putting a lot of heat on him, he says, they allege that we have fallen away from the Holy Church and set up a new church, but we are the true ancient Catholic Church. You have fallen away from us. That's Luther. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can you can find that quote. That's uh, he, that's the uh, beginning of the conclusion in Barrett's book, which is a nine hundred page beast and is worth your time if you really want to give this stuff serious thought. Right, and of course we're to the point we haven't mentioned it, but of course we're assuming this. Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Yep, and they never cite that on any of these discussions, yeah. right? Jesus yeah. says, I've, I will build my church. Gates of hell won't prevail against it. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. so the LDS claim that, that, uh, well, you know, we're not the first ones to claim an apostasy. The, the reformers claimed an apostasy. The reformers really, they, they believe there was a Catholic church. They saw themselves as Augustinian. Yep. They even, uh, one reformer, I, I think it was, it was, was it Buer? I can't remember, but he, he claimed to be a Calvinistic Thomist. So yeah. he even was uh, seeing himself in alignment with much of the tradition that Thomas Aquinas right. had, uh, had, um, had articulated. So yeah, yeah the, the reformers saw themselves very much in line with the, the tradition of the one true holy Catholic church. Right. And they didn't see themselves as starting something new or innovating. They more so were calling about calling out in the last few hundred years, the organization uh, in Rome has gone, has gone wrong. It's gone, yeah, it's erred. They need to be corrected, right? And reformed according to the scripture. Yeah, but the church, it's a non-negotiable. Be reformed according to scripture, and even you know, in the beginning of uh, the preface uh, to the institutes, the introductory letter, right to the King of France, I believe it was. Yeah, Calvin said, "You you won't find anything in here that's opposed to our Catholic faith, our Catholic faith." Yeah. Um. So they they do cite Roger Williams, who they I, I'll put a book in the show notes I read. Um over the break, the church and the state, Roger Williams. I do think they have a point with Roger Williams. You know, uh, he just, there was no church perfect enough for him. And eventually he leaves and him and another gentleman baptize each other. And then within a few months, he even leaves that church and says, no, the, you know, we're going to need uh, new apostles for uh, the church to come back anyway. So they may have a point on that. I just want to point that out to show. I'm not just pointing out errors. Um, now, they do cite a text by Erasmus, which you'll know, right, is a, a debating partner of Luther. They were shared in their humanism, 
and humanism did not mean what then what it means now, but in they both wanted to reform the church, but Erasmus stayed in, and then famous debate over the freedom of the will, bondage of the will, great debate between Luther and Erasmus over the point of the whole thing, but. Um, Certainly, as a priest who also believed in transubstantiation, defended it. I, I would think he's not saying there's no church, but they quote him as saying, everything is now so entangled with these questions, and then they put in brackets of doctrine and decrees that we dare not even hope to call the world back to true Christianity. They cite the praise of folly. And here's the, here's the thing. This is a satire that he wrote um, right to, for his friend Thomas More, and I, I didn't have enough time to read it to see if the quote was genuine. But the point being, it's a satire. It's not, he's not arguing this. In, there's plenty of texts Erasmus wrote and letters and stuff calling for reform of the church. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, in fact, it was his Greek New Testament that he published apart from official channels that Luther's studying when he had his justification breakthrough, ironically dedicated to the Pope who would end up excommunicating Luther. Yep. Um, so, and then just one more fake quote in Talmadge's chapter, the long night of apostasy, he cites as evidence, a hom quote, a homily against peril of idolatry from the church of England in which, and I'll, it says just really quick so that lady and clergy learned and unlearned all ages, sex and degrees of men, women and children of whole Christendom, a horrible and most dreadful thing to think have been at once drowned in an abominable idolatry of all other vices, most detested of God and most damnable to man, and that by the space of 800 years and more. He uses this quote, Talmadge does, to say that this is arguing that there's been an apostasy for 800 years or more. Well, I've got a great book, and one that I agree on. I know we don't see the second commandment exactly the same, but this is a great book that helped me from Icons Idols. It includes uh, historical background to this set of homilies. And what it's not saying the church has disappeared. What it's saying is that icons or images, especially of Jesus, have corrupted the worship of the church and argues, based on even early church the scriptures, but also even early church fathers, that this is a deviation. So regardless of what you think, he's this is a misuse of citation. So yeah. I'm going to assume, having not read the book yet, this new book will not make these types of mistakes. But here's one thing I think we should all agree on. Stop misquoting us. Yeah, please. Please <laughs> stop stop taking quotes and abusing them or putting in fake quotes in the mouth of Luther to try to get LDS to think he agreed with them. Because yeah. guess what? He believed in the Trinity. He believed in the scriptures of the word of God, the correct Christology. Although one, one point I don't agree with Luther on. But anyways, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not LDS Christology, right? And in the gospel, Yep. Right. Yep. And based on the word of God in the original languages. Yep. All right. I'm wrapping this up because okay. we're out of time. Uh, appreciate you sticking with us an hour and a half. Exactly. So well done. Well done. If you're with us still, uh, we're going to be looking at first and second Timothy, Titus and Philemon next week. Be thou an example to the believers. We'll see you then.